Whether you're a polyamateur or polyambitious, polyambiguous or polyam, I really hold your head high. Let your freaky flag fly, cause your polyamory should be uncensored. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. Welcome to episode 79, where we talk with cunning minx and lusty guy about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. All right. So cunning minx and lusty guy, who are you? Well, thanks for having us. That's an existential uh, question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. like it that way. Well, you can go first, then. If you, you tell me you've already got a whack at it. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, as as Lusty Guy said, thank you for having us. Always an honor to be on other poly podcasts. I'm just excited to be in a world when I'm not the only poly podcaster. So that makes me very excited. And sorry, you may hear the dog running around a little bit in the background. Well, first of all, super excited to be here on another poly podcast because we are now in an age of an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the poly podcast you have to choose from. And uh, who am I? I am Minx. I have been podcasting for about 17 years. And I am just a poly person who started a podcast because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing and was making a lot of mistakes. And so I decided I would uh, start talking about those mistakes and see if maybe, you know, the, the lessons that I'd learned might help other people. And here we are 17 years later. And I am Lusty Guy. And for about the last eight years, I have been co-producing and co-hosting Minx's podcast. In other words, she has been so kind as to let me coast on her coattails. Um, and before that, uh, I've been around the sex positive community since really the late 80s when I worked in um, what was known as Seattle's feminist strip club, uh, Women Managed uh, Lusty Lady Amusement Center, and for my own adult uh, company trying to promote sex positivism and have been part of the, the swing community and non-monogamous community really, you know, all my adult life. Very cool. So how do the two of you identify? Not necessarily together, but how do you identify? Well, I identify as poly. I identified as solo poly for a long time. And I think in my head, I'm still kind of solo poly. <laughs> Lusty, I can tell you, I tend to like to do things the way I like to do them. And, and um, I won't say I'm bad at compromising, but it's not the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, and well, I just, you're very good at compromising. I do tend to put myself first. Um, so I think there's a part of me that is still a little solo poly. Um, but in general, I just consider myself poly uh, living with my two nesting partners. Well, when I'm traveling internationally, I use my passport to self-identify. And when I'm buying booze at the local store, I use my, my, my state ID. But short of that, I'm assuming you mean in terms of, of, of monogamy and whatnot. And I go back, I've actually... I have identified as non-monogamous for longer than there has been the term polyamory. In my own little heart of hearts, still, if you ask me, I pretty much identify as non-monogamous um, or ethically non-monogamous or consensually non-monogamous. I don't tend to use the term polyamory other than as a shorthand with people so that they'll know that I'm talking in that general direction. But 
but it's fine. I don't squawk about it when it's applied to me either. And what does polyamory mean to you? To me, it means that whoever's just used the term, I need to ask them what it means to them. And the nature of that question should probably have to do around the number of sexual partners that they will have consensually at any one time. Am I supposed to answer that, too? Because I kind of like his answer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the early days when I was podcasting, I just went with the Wikipedia definition, which at the time was uh, a lifestyle uh, promoting multiple uh, simultaneous relationships with the full knowledge and consent of all parties involved. And that was great when people didn't know what polyamory was at all. But now I think Lusty Guy has kind of nailed it that we all have a lot of different definitions. And even if we have the same definition, it doesn't mean that my life is going to look like yours. So it basically means it's not going to look like that person's uh, lifestyle is not going to look like monogamy, but uh, I need to ask more questions to figure out exactly, you know, what their relationship style is and what their lifestyle is. Yeah. I say all the time that a good label informs the next set of questions. That's, that's like really that. what it what it does. And if you have a good one, then your next set of questions will be such that after you're done with those, you'll have a pretty good idea. Uh, maybe there'll be some follow-ups, but you'll be able to be like, oh, okay. So, you know, someone says they're polyamorous. Well, you know, I've been in the game long enough now that I'd be like, okay, I can use some, some, some commonly accepted sub-labels to really dial in. Like you do your hierarchical poly, you non-hierarchical poly. And once we get those sub-labels narrowed down, then I can ask really, really penetrating questions like, oh, you do hierarchical poly. Does that mean that you have a um, uh, veto rule, right? And, and by the way, you might get somebody who says that you do hierarchical poly and you're like, oh, okay, does that mean you have a veto rule? And they say, no. Ah, um, well, does that mean that you have a space where only you and the person that's in our can, can, can play? No. Uh, does that mean you have commingled fine? No. Well, what the hell does it mean? Well, it means that on their birthday, I do whatever they want. You just never know. <laughs> I, I'll never forget when I met a woman who identified as lesbian and slept exclusively with men. And I was like, wait a minute. How the fuck does that work? Um, <laughs> And, and, and she told me at the time, you know, this is years ago. Um, now she might choose the term queer. A lot of people use the term queer to identify as being very uh, sexually adventuresome, unbound by uh, 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 conventional uh, mores around uh, sex and gender and whatnot. She might use that term, but that's what she meant. That and she wanted to show an affiliation uh, with people who would use the term queer. But yeah, so I, I met a woman who said she was lesbian and slept only with men. And I was like, okay, that's it. Labels suck. I know now what I need to do with them. Ask the next set of questions. You know, and I realized too that you asked how we identify, but you didn't specify lifestyle. Um, so other labels that could apply to me at least are cis and cisgendered and heterosexual slash booby sexual and uh, the person with invisible, not quite yet disability, but lots of limitations, differently abled. Uh, there are lots of other labels that we could apply. Unhappy American. Sure. <laughs> Cur- curmudgeon, iconoclast, man ahead of his time. I mean, you name it. It just it goes on and on. Yeah. We love all of the answers. We leave it wide open like that because we really love to see sort of where people go with the question. It's just always interesting. So what drew you to polyamory? Well, for me, that's easy. I fell in love with a guy who was poly and I could either sit there and be miserable and not be with somebody that I was, had fallen madly in love with, or I could try polyamory. And I'd never been, 
you know, I'd never been strictly monogamous in the sense that I thought it was the only way to go. Uh, you know, when I was a kid and fantasized about, you know, being a fairy tale princess and marrying a fantasy prince and being swept off to Paris, I would then fantasize about uh, meeting another fancy prince in Paris. Maybe not a prince. Maybe this one's an entrepreneur. Uh, maybe this one's an artist. And I could never quite figure out how to finish the story because that's not how the media <laughs> would portray uh, feminine romance. So I was always a little bit confused. Um, I never had thought specifically that one was enough. It's just how everybody did it. And so that's how I thought things were supposed to be. And I thought maybe I was a little bit weird. But at any rate, I had a, a very intense, if you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, you know, I had a very intense first poly relationship, made a lot of mistakes, had a lot of fun and a lot of growth. And, uh, and as many relationships do, that one did end after about five years. But I never, I don't regret one minute of it because it really opened up my eyes to a lot more of myself and the world and made me the person I am today that lusty guy fell in love with. No, oh, lucky me. Yeah. And uh, Lusty Guy, feel free to answer it as what drew you to non-monogamy as opposed to polyamory. Yeah, substitution already made. I, I know what you mean. One of the things we tried to do is listen with goodwill, right? So, so I'm working with you. Um, I, for me, there wasn't anything that ever drew me to it. I have always been this way. Uh, I lost my virginity in a triad in the summer between fifth and sixth grade in a little town on the Washington-Idaho border, uh, on the banks of the Snake River, in fact. Uh, and it was lovely. It was wonderful. Um, other than if you don't think too long about what it means for fifth and sixth graders to be sexualized, if you just set that aside for a little bit. But no, it was, it was a triad, and I've never been monogamous, even at that early age. I remember talking to people and framing it and, and uh, saying I, don't, I couldn't understand jealousy. That jealousy meant that I loved someone so much that I had to be the sole source of all of their pleasure. And that just seemed ridiculous to me uh, in you know sixth grade. There was a brief period uh, in, so Elle and I have been together since I was in, uh, what, seventh grade, 14, um, eighth grade, something like that. Wow. And she was in high school. And um, we, we were also were not monogamous. We were part of an extended network. And uh, one year during our undergrad, um, she had a number of lovers in a row force the choice, right? And after each of those choices, them forcing the choice and then her choosing me because I had preexisted them. She had told them going in, she wasn't monogamous. And then da, 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 you must choose. Um, and so... After one of those really rocked her world, she said, you know, I think this is what's always going to happen. Somebody is always going to get hurt if we keep this up. And I don't want to keep hurting people. And uh, I said to her, well, you know, I'm, I'm more in love with you than my philosophy. So let's, let's give it a shot. And over the next year, honestly, neither of us can tell you exactly how many times this happened. Three to eight on a guess. Um, I would come home crying and admitting that I had just slept with somebody because the opportunity had arised and I wanted to. And then afterwards I felt like shit. And after the nth time of that happening, Elf said to me, you know, this isn't working. We need to renegotiate because I really don't give a shit about monogamy. I just don't want to hurt people. Um, so other than that year period, I've never even tried to be monogamous. And when I did, I failed miserably reinforcing the notion that it's just not for me. So if, if, if what drew me to it, I mean, integrity, I guess you could say, but really nothing. I've just always been that way. And what, if anything, do you find difficult about polyamory and ethical non-monogamy? So 
I'll take the first whack at this one. And it's the same thing that everybody finds difficult with life. This is one of those things that is a constant theme in our show and our conversations. I really don't believe that there is anything particular about non-monogamy that presents challenges that aren't there for monogamy. Now, if you are transforming your life, if you have been monogamous for, you know, the X number of years beforehand, and you're trying to become non-monogamous, there will be a lot of common experiences and challenges, but I think those arise from the transformation, just like if you're trying to transform anything else important and vital in your life. If you know people who were formerly rabid meat eaters that become strict vegetarians, I'm sure could sit around and discuss commonalities in the pain of that transformation. And it's the transformation which which brings those common experiences. But setting that aside, we all have common pains. Like one of the common ones you hear all the time in the world of non-monogamy is I can't find anybody to see. My partner's running around seeing all these people and I can't find anybody to see. So you've really never heard a monogamous person say, I can't find anybody to date. Really? That's, that's, that's unique. I, mm-hmm, no, no, don't think so. Um, the, 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 oh my God, my partner's cheated on me in some way, right? They, they shouldn't have slept in the bed and they slept in the bed. They told me Tuesdays were ours, but now Tuesdays are not ours. I thought I was the most important. I'm not. There's no split. There's no line in the celestial sand where monogamous people have to deal with this and non-monogamous people don't. Um, if anything, the challenge that is, quote, unique, unquote, about non-monogamy or polyamory is that all you motherfuckers out there doing it think you're unique. You're not. <laughs> you, 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 that not is, that is true. Or enlightened, unique and yeah. enlightened. <laughs> yeah, that's that. that so, you know, that's what I got. Your turn, Mix. You know, these days, I don't find anything difficult about polyamory, really. Um, I've, you know, I found my people. We have a, you know, pretty stable family. Uh, the stresses of the pandemic notwithstanding, we work pretty well together. We are each, you know, strong, self-actualized individuals and have all been doing this for an extended period of time. Uh, Lusty Guy and Elle, uh, as you heard for you know, decades, <laughs> me for almost decade, decades, decade plus, yeah. almost, almost two decades now. So at this yeah. point in your journey, it's just not difficult. Well, no more than any relationship of this duration. We've been together uh, over eight years now. Uh, it's been quite a while. <laughs> so actually, no, it would be 10 altogether commitment ceremony eight years ago. I should really know this. At any rate, um, you know, we certainly have our disagreements and we have issues that are not yet fully resolved. And, you know, we work through them together. We communicate through them. We're honest about, you know, what we do and don't want. And, you know, most of them get resolved eventually. It's not that there aren't any challenges. There are. Uh, but as Lustig, I said, nothing is really unique to polyamory. There is one thing I do want to point out, though, and that's that today, the day that we're recording, happens to be Elle's birthday. So I don't know if she listens to your podcast, but I just want to give a shout out to Elle, the best metamor a person could have. And oh, while I ride on <laughs> Minx's coattails, I got to jump on that. Uh, Elle really, as I tell her all the time, taught me how to love. I come from a very violent, nasty upbringing where you're supposed to learn all the lessons from your mother and none of those did I learn. And um, Elle has been you know, people, people who know me, Minks all the time says, it's just amazing that you're not in jail. How, how come you don't have a cooler bodies in the woods? Things like that. And, you know, there's I don't actually one say really that, just big so you know. reason. 
and it's her work. You do too. You don't do the cooler in the ru- in the in, in the woods. That's just for humor. But she does do the first. Um, and L is why. Uh, uh, really, L knows how to love. If everybody had an L in their life, I am unmovably convinced that the world would be vastly better. It's true. She is one of the kindest and most generous and selfless and giving people that uh, that I have ever met. And I am perfectly comfortable saying I am nowhere near that selfless or giving, but really, really glad to have her in my polycule. Yeah. Now, she's not perfect. Right. I mean, she's listening. One of the things that makes her love me is that I, I see her and still love her. We all have our little gaps. But Elle's amazing. Well, happy birthday, Al. <laughs> so, Lusty Guy, you've kind of already answered this, but um, and I guess actually both of you have kind of already answered this, but I'll throw it out there in case there's anything you want to add. When did you know that you were non-monogamous or poly? Yeah, always. <laughs> yeah. And for me, the, the story I told earlier that I when I would fantasize about finding someone, it was never just one. It was always more than one. <laughs> so it's not that I, I didn't identify as poly then. I always I had identified as monogamous right up until I met um, Gray, who was my first poly romance and first poly love. Uh, but the reason that I was open to trying to date him, even though I had never been poly, was because I had these ideas and never thought that monogamy was the one way and the only way. I just didn't really know other people who actually did this, apart from some people I met at, no surprise, the Renaissance Fair. (laughs) Yep. My husband is a Ren Fair guy. He worked there for many years. Yep. (laughs) As did I. As did I. You know, when you think about it, all the all the attention that the right wing puts on, you know, video games and comic books and TV is a source of violence and corruption. Really, it's the Ren Fair. They do not know what's going on at the Ren Fairs. They the have nation. no yeah. idea what's going on in all those and their little like candle and soap and fresh cider booth and mead. They have no idea what's going on at those behind the scenes, or they would never take their kids there. I love it. <laughs> and, and everybody knows that the Ren Fair is really just the introductory drug to the SCA. Right. SCA is like when, when you grow out, when you're like, oh, Renfair is too softcore for me. And then you go to the SCA and man, those ca- you think the Renfair is corrupting the youth. I was a page in the SCA. And let me tell you, that was some good <laughs> time. Society for Creative Anachronism, for those who aren't familiar. Uh, we interviewed one of my high school boyfriends uh, a while back who has been an active SCA person since we were in high school and was certainly the first person I knew who was Polly. <laughs> well, I did oh, yeah. actually date an SCA person while I was also dating. Great. Met it at, a, at an SCA event, I think at an SCA event. In fact, one of the first things I ever wrote in my journal about him was uh, getting laced into a corset at that event to um, flirt with him, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. So a, little, a little tangent about the SCA. In, in my former life, one of the things I did was run a porn company. Uh, and said porn company was trying to make sex positive porn. We didn't bring singles together with people in pre-existing relationships. And we would interview them and ask them how they came together and then have them do whatever they want to do. We called them fuckumentary. And so this one couple had met at an SCA event. And they talked about how they had met at the SCA event and their costumes and the roles that they were in and so on and so forth. And so in the packaging and in the promotion of it, I mentioned, you know, that they met at an SCA event. Well, 
the FDA got wind of that and sent me a cease and desist letter and said, you can't be, you can't be talking about us and you're porn. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, please. Like nobody in porn was ever at the SCA. Please. <laughs> I wrote up a letter back and I said, look, you know, truthfully, this is a biography. These are these people's real experiences. They own the story. I, I, I can, in fact, talk about it. But I tell you what. Because I'm a former member and I love what you do, I will take the name off the web page and I will take the name off the packaging. Can we can we live with that? And I never heard back from him and their attorney never never did anything. So I guess we could have. <laughs> that is a great story. So along the lines of our last question, um, our kind of follow up to that is when, if ever, have you felt different from other folks? You can go first on that one, maybe I'll, I'll let you take the first crack. You know, it's a little bit always and a little bit never. I don't, as Lustig, I will tell you, I've always been a pretty focused individual. <laughs> it's a nice way to put it. And I was uh, growing up, I was really focused on my studies. I always had goals for myself. Um, I usually met the goals. I get frustrated when I didn't meet the goals. I, it never occurred to me really to think of myself as weird. I, I think I pretty much only do that in retrospect. I remember growing up and just being fairly introverted and focused on my schoolwork and focused on certain things, completely unaware of any type of differences around me. But to be fair, I grew up in Plano, Texas, where the differences are not celebrated, shall we say. <laughs> it's very a very homogenous community. Now, in retrospect, when I when I think about it, the fact that I had I had two or three good friends, which to me was all I really needed. I didn't need a clique of people in high school. I really just needed a couple of friends to hang out with. And I was fine with that. Uh, and I did. And it, you know, probably should have I probably should have noticed that my best friends were like the one black woman in the school and like the guy who was so obviously gay to everybody but himself and me. Uh, and I, I should have noticed that, you know, in retrospect, I looked and, and see that, you know, we were a couple of misfits and we sort of found each other is the 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 story I kind of tell myself. But I, I, I don't remember. I didn't feel that way at the time. I knew I wasn't a popular cheerleader, but, uh, you know, I made straight A's. So I didn't really, you know, didn't really care too much about that. So in terms and that was a more so that's a more general question about, you know, how I felt about myself growing up and what have you. You know, when I first became familiar with polyamory and in that first poly relationship, I did the thing that a lot of people do, which is I, I really dove deep into polyamory. Um, that community became my community. Those people became my people. And I think as I came out to my friends and family at that time, I, I think that I didn't do a very good job of coming out because I think I did position it as something not that was better for me, but that was a better way to be. I was just so excited about it that I found someone that I loved and I found this community that worked for me. And I think I basically put people off and distanced them from me. So I ended up losing a lot of my longtime friends. Um, not because there was any bitter argument or you know anything they vehemently disagreed with. I think I just ended up spending a lot more time with my new poly friends and in that new poly space. And all I talked about was polyamory and BDSM. Those they they went hand in hand with me. And so you know it's not something I felt like my my other friends really wanted to hear that much about. And so I think I kind of pushed them away. So I wouldn't say that uh, you know I felt disapproved of. I, I do take that as a reflection on my own actions at the time. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. For myself, I've I've always felt different. Um, I, uh, in my first interactions, my first peer group, as it were, my first social group was, of course, my family, like most of us. And uh, my family was, uh, you know, my mother was a 13-year-old addict when I was born. Um, and my cousins were all very rural. We were very rural. Uh, when I was <clears throat> literally four and five years old, my grandma would pack a lunch, give me a 22 rifle, put me on the back of my pony and say, see you in the afternoon. And I would ride around shooting things all day. Uh, and in that world where men in particular are very strong and very masculine and very capable and very stoic, I was none of those things. Now, granted, I was a child, but still. I knew I was none of those things. I was, I was much more sensitive than everybody else. Uh, grandma would have me shoot chickens uh, and, and then we would eat the chickens. And um, I didn't particularly like doing that, you know. And when, when I would shoot larger game, I was bothered by that. Well, none of the other men in, in the family were. Um, and uh, I was much more interested in the conversations and what the women would say than all of the other men in my family. Um, and, you know, the, so the, when I say men in my family, I mean, not only men that are, have some biological relation, but also the assortment of rotating boyfriends that my mother and her sisters had. My, my grandmother had four daughters. Um, and so it was very much a matriarchy. And there was this rotating uh, uh, cast of male characters. Um, and I didn't fit in then. When I got into school, I didn't fit in. Uh, growing up, you know, I was either the, 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 the very poor, weird kid that had PTSD and was abused, or I was the nerd, or I was both. As I got a little older, I grew my first beard when I was 14. Um, and I'll never forget, I had a full beard. It's my first year in high school, 10th grade. And the um, uh, English teacher who was a former pro football player and whose child, I'm not going to name them, but whose child, everybody would know their name, went on to become a very big name pro football player, um, was at the front of class teaching English, calling roll call, first day in class, first day of 10th grade, calls my name. I say here, he looks up at me, looks down and says, loud enough for every bullying class to hear, never seen a freshman with a full beard before. And it was open season. I will say this. The brawl that I got in on the public bus with one of the kids who was encouraged by that comment uh, was spectacular. I won tellingly, and one of the other bullies saw it, and it was the beginning of the end. I had to have one more fight with one of those bullies who saw it, but it was the beginning of the end of my bullying. So I will credit that English teacher with that. But it was just one of a long series of things. I've always known I've been different. I've never fit in um, uh, anywhere, really, to this day. So on a, I think, probably happier note of questions, where are you in your poly journey? As with almost every journey that I've been on, I feel like I'm in the middle. (laughs) I mean, it's been a while now, but I'm definitely not at the end. I'm definitely not at the beginning. So I guess the answer to that is in the middle. And I guess related is where do you hope to go, if anywhere? I guess it, it's a little cheesy to say, but I feel like for me, the answer to that is I am really enjoying growing old with Lusty Guy and L, and I hope to do that, preferably someplace uh, warm and exotic, and to continue to share you know, the rest of our lives together. I know it's hokey, but you know, this is the first relationship I've had that lasted more than five years in my life. So 
I'm not particularly excited about <laughs> starting over should things here, you know, not be compatible in the future. But I, this is the first one where we've talked about growing old together and I actually didn't roll my eyes and think, oh yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, I actually think we will. I think when we first got together, our, I don't know, our first six months, maybe 12 months in, Minx looked at me and said, man, this is really going to hurt when we break up, isn't it? <laughs> never forgotten that um i will say this in terms of where where my my poly journey and where i am at the bottom line honestly i'm sitting pretty fat and happy if the truth be told um i have a fantastic set of relationships with l and with minx we have a wonderful household together and and a long distance comment relationship that she cannot be named um and i got nothing but good things to say in regards to that, I'm not hungry and eager and, you know, striving to add somebody. If I, I will say this, like if I could find a, a partner that uh, liked to dive, I wouldn't say Scuba no. diver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, honestly, I'm sitting pretty fat and happy. And as uh, Mink said, you know, what I'm looking forward to and where I'm going is growing old with each other we are all north of 50 at this point and um if you know the truth of the matter is until i was 40 i would not admit that one's age had an effect on one's personality i was like yeah that's just bullshit whatever uh no it's true your age does have an effect on personality and uh in the 50s i think it's only reasonable that people start looking forward a little bit and thinking about you know the details of what those next couple decades are going to be if you're lucky enough to be able to experience them and you start to get a different perspective because you remember two decades back and you're like wow two decades back uh oh that wasn't that long ago two decades forward that's not going to be that long if you make it and so really you know i where am i hoping to be man i'm hoping my ass in another 10 years is sitting in a tropical compound with a bunch of little tiny houses uh, for me and l and uh uh minks and she cannot be named and you know who knows they're assorted others and family and whatnot my and brother can, other friends who went to retire with us <laughs> toddle my ass out into the warm salt water to start and end every day and eat uh, fresh fish and pig that I've got and, you know, watch another sunset. Chickens? You wanted chickens? I, you know, ch fuck chickens. Uh, you just, uh, <laughs> I, I've had chickens. Chickens are nasty, gross, dirty. Everybody who's got chickens for pets like, what do you mean? So cute. When you're raising enough chickens that you're raising them to eat and for the eggs, it's different, man. And they're just, they're gross, nasty, mean, dirty things. All right. No anti-chicken sentiment here. We are open yeah, here to all. <laughs> Apparently, though, you're going to need to buy your eggs. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, there's a lot of feral chickens on Hawaii. We're talking about the big island of Hawaii. There's feral chickens there. There are chicken. feral chickens. They're they're lean. It's so funny. They're just walking out in the parking lots and across the roads, but they're definitely not the chickens that you're used to seeing because they are they are lean, definitely. But what we really need is like a neighbor with chickens, just like everybody needs a friend with a boat and a neighbor with chickens. Yeah, that's go. right. Yeah. yeah, they will always I'll have extra. They'll always yep. give you some. <laughs> yep. That's fantastic. I'll, I'll, I'll trade a pig meat for it. <laughs> we'll grow, I'll grow pineapples. They can have our pineapples. That all sounds like lovely plants. <laughs> Love that. Uh, and so uh, coming up on our, our last couple of questions, uh, why do you think you are poly? Um, so for me, that's the same question of why are we anything? And at the top level, it's because of the combination of the biology, the genes, and the experiences. 
And so basically my, my biology, which I'm going to say DNA, but it's more than your DNA. It's your DNA and your prenatal environment and uh, 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 paragenetic effects and so on and so forth. All, that. all of those activities created a range of possibilities, which is then actualized by the details of the environment that that potential set found itself in. And is that particularly useful? No. Uh, the other answer to why am I poly is because I value integrity. And my internal state is not a monogamous was one. Uh, the other answer is because I'm lazy. It's easier for me to be non-monogamous than it is to be monogamous. I found through bitter experience. We talked about it, talked about it earlier. Um, the other answer is that it makes more sense to me. Um, it just, I simply can't rock a non-monogamous existence. It doesn't fit in my head. Again, you know, I love you so much. You better not have any fun unless it has to do with me. Me, 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 me. I just don't get that. Um, are any of those answers the real reason? Who knows? Probably not. Probably the first one is the closest in a really broken kind of way. But really, who knows? And that's probably true for everything about us. Everything about us. Why are we anything? Probably because of all those weird biological and environmental factors interacting in a way that's so complicated you really can't tease it apart. Is that useful? No. No, you, you're going to have more use if you think about it in terms of, oh, because my mother said this and I thought that and then this happened and that made more sense to me. And that's the model that makes sense to me. Is any of that true? Yeah, probably not. OK, Mr. Biologist Philosopher. <laughs> they asked. <laughs> they did. They did. It was a very good answer. It's, I don't like it when you go first because I don't like to follow you. So much more intellectual than my answers, which are basically you know, again, I found Polly at a time that I was open to it with somebody I cared about. And after that, you know, I, I did go back to solo Polly for a while after we broke up. Uh, and for that matter, there was a period of about a year when I was only dating people who weren't in pre-existing relationships, uh, just because I was treated so badly by everyone that everyone in the poly community um, that I tried to date. Uh, the couple privilege is real, and it was always a couple. It was never like I couldn't just find another solo poly person. And uh, for a while, I just for my own mental health, I had to only date um, uh, people who were previously uncoupled a.k.a. monogamous or at the very least poly-friendly. But, uh, you know, in the end, it just works for me. You know, at this point, I don't have any other relationships unless you count my relationship with like my job and my cat. But uh, I also don't really have time or energy for any other relationships. So while I'm not ruling them out, it's pretty unlikely that another relationship, um, you know, another romantic, sexual or intimate type relationship would happen with me for another person. But, you know, my joking answer is more like, I don't know how people can live these days in America with fewer than three adults per household. I mean, you know, especially in Seattle, it's like the housing is so expensive. Like I, I can live by myself. Uh, sometimes I miss living by myself. Uh, but in terms of our household, I just heard him laugh when he was on mute from across the hall. Um, but, you know, really with three income earning adults in the house and, you know, contributing, you know, financially and to chores and to emotional support, you know, it's, it's still almost barely enough, like really another person or two would make it, you know, a little bit better so that, you know, everything would be fully covered. So, you know, single parents or, you know, just two people in a couple, I don't know how you do it. I don't know. You can like have live a life and have fun and have romance and, you know, 
God is forbid, raise kids. So, you know, it actually really works well that there are three of us so uh, I think in the household. Is, to circle back, I think what Mix is really saying is that if there's a high earning, uh, smart, poly woman who likes to dive in the Seattle area, hit us up. Otherwise, Sugar Mama. Scuba, yeah, otherwise, scuba diving sugar mama. There you go. I, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to distill, you know, what you and I have just said, just kind of get it right out there in, you know, personal, personal ad form. There you go. There you go. Uh, I completely agree with you, Minx, on how challenging it is. I am a single mom and, um, and a solo poly person, and it definitely feels like, ah, quick, catch the ball, quick, catch the other ball. See, I feel like that now. I mean, I, Lustig, I'll tell you, I live for my lists. In fact, uh, I coined the word a couple of years ago, the word taskgasm for the almost sexual and sometimes just plain sexual joy I get in checking things off my list. It just makes me feel like a whole and complete and self-actualized human being. Really makes me very happy. Um, but I suppose that's true when I was monogamous and living alone as well. So uh, you take that as you will. But yeah, especially with COVID, uh, even with... Uh, you know, it's, you'd think that staying at home, you'd have more time to do things because you're around the house. And that's certainly true. Um, but there's also, you know, there's fewer opportunities to nurse my mental health because we're always all together all the time. And we're in Seattle. It, you know, is gray and chilly and and drippy or rainy a lot. So uh, I really wish we had <laughs> been able to move to Hawaii just before the pandemic, because that would have been a whole lot better. You know, I yeah. think it's it's a it's a pandemic. We all, we're we're justified to give ourselves a little a little slack. Yeah. One of the things that I say all the time, you were talking about how you know as a single mom, you're feeling like you've got balls up in the air all the time, and makes us like well, I feel like that too. You know, I say all the time, everybody's shovel's always full. Um, we are all always running on the mm -hmm. red line. It's, it's kind of the nature of adult life in this culture. But having said that, man, my hat is off to you all doing yeah. single parenthood. That is some real shit right there. You know, I never had to do it alone. I grew up, of course, in, in very, you know, single or even places where the kids outnumbered the adults by a whole lot, um, where there were no adults. Um, but <clears throat> as an adult, as a parent, it was, we always outnumbered the spawn, right? There was, there was one spawn and two of us, and Elle and I were, were a team uh, consistently for those years. And when one of us would have to go away for a little while, Whoever was there would just get their ass kicked, man, handed to them. So I got to say, y'all out there, single parenthood, that while everybody's shovels full, your shovels are more full. That's some hard shit. Hats off. Especially during the pandemic, I have friends that are, you know, super conscientious, awesome, even in, you know, two parent families. Like, how are you how are you just sending your kids back to school? Like, I can't imagine having a kid that I that was required to go back to school now. And then and the alternative is teaching them at home, which is I mean, I can barely get my work done and then, you know, maybe work around the house a little bit. So it's not a complete, you know, big stuff. <laughs> I can't imagine doing that and trying to homeschool my kid or make sure my kid's doing Zoom homework um, or having the stress of having them be in an actual school classroom during a pandemic. So agreed. Hats off to all the single parents, all the parents out there for juggling all of that. Yeah, I will say having slightly older kids makes it less absolutely nuts. I can't imagine how Lindsay and Rob managed with a very small child at home during the pandemic and then just starting school. 
Yeah, it's kind of, it's terrifying. Every day is terrifying, but it's, you know, it is nice that she's out of the house for eight hours a day because I can now do the laundry and dishes. Whereas before they just piled up for a year. That's, you know, it happened. <laughs> we got through it. Now she's in school. I have a little bit of time myself, but oh yeah, it's rough. It is rough. You know, it really reminds me of growing up in the 80s with the fear of nuclear uh, war anytime. In terms of the level of fear, the difference is, of course, that nuclear war is kind of a big toggle. It's either on or off. You wake up every day and you know the virus is like a constant, small, low-level drip that is just hitting around. Mm-hmm. But that level of constant fear does really remind me of, of my childhood in the 80s. A hundred percent. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Makes me think of uh, uh, for a while I was watching a while back uh, when Battlestar Galactica, the, the new version came out and I was watching it with uh, my partner at the time who is long distance. And, uh, you know, kind of like the idea of everybody's around you a cyborg, but you don't know who's a cyborg. And you don't know how many of them there are. And there's no way to tell who is the cyborg. And I kind of feel like that. Like, I really wish there were just a way that we could indicate the people who have COVID and the people who don't. So I know you know who to stay away from instead of having to stay away from absolutely everyone. Sometimes I feel like I'm being unreasonably paranoid and overly cautious. And other times I feel like I'm not being cautious enough. And it would just really help if, you know, we had a cyborg skin or a COVID skin or where they would just like, I don't know, light up purple or something. And you would a big scarlet C, you know, yeah. something they have to wear. Just like, you know, glow purple. It's, it's they a, have like Trump a green flag. cloud over them, something like that. It's the Trump flag. <laughs> yes, that, that helps. yes, that that <laughs> does help. That does help. You just can't always see at the restaurant because they're not always flying their flags there. It's true. It used Although to be masking, but now nobody masks, even the vaccinated, you know, like, well, everyone is just trying to, like, get back to normal. And so now I can't be like, well, you're not wearing a mask, but that could actually, be nothing. That's not, yeah. Yeah. That's that's not true here well, in yeah. Seattle. We we do have a mask mandate for mm, indoors and nice. and everybody complies. In fact, a lot of people wear them outdoors, too. Um, I went to an outdoor uh, market that's down the street from us, and it was required that everybody wear them outdoors, even in the market. And there was no enforcement of it. And yet everybody was wearing them without complaining. So this is what it's this is those liberal coastal elites doing crazy things like caring about each other to stop the spread. So I'm nice. having a massive I, jealous moment. Yeah, I'm very jealous or it's compulsive. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> I get it. I hear you. You know, you're you're like uh, you don't have the mask on. I can't tell whether you've been vaccinated or not. You're taking advantage of that. The way to know is just to ask them who won the last presidential election. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there you go. That's a good. That one. is yeah. the joke. Yeah. Ask them who won That's, the election, and then you know. But then you have to talk to them, which I don't want to do. Which I don't want to do. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So the last question for our first half is, why did you agree to be interviewed? Because it's less work than doing the interview. <laughs> I lo- it's Actually, it's been a really long time since we've been asked to be on somebody else's show. I kind of miss it. So there's that. Uh, number two, I always want to support other podcasters, especially poly podcasters, but any type of podcasters. I've been on a gaming podcast and um, some other ones just because I, I really am into podcasting. I want to support other folks. Um, number three is super easy just to shoot my mouth off without having to prepare anything. So I really like that. <laughs> and oh, it's COVID. Didn't have anything better to do. There you go. Four <laughs> reasons right there. Well, thank you very much. Is- appreciate it. Well, thank you for having us. There's, there's a famous story of, uh, uh, I think it's Ian McClellan, and he's having dinner with an, uh, 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 a 
an interviewer and the interviewer asks him, you know, why did you, why did you get into this? Why do you act? McClellan locks eyes with him across the table and looks at him and says, look at me, 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 look at me. And that's an actor. And so, you know, I mean, I, I agree to the interview because, because I'm an actor and, and, and look at me. No, seriously. It's, uh, uh, in all honesty and direct candor, truthfully, it's a, an opportunity to promote our show, Poly Weekly, the way that hasn't heard it. It's an opportunity to provide some support for another podcaster in the space, as Mick said. Um, and it's a chance to hopefully create some compelling content for the community, right? Who doesn't want to be a storyteller that people want to listen to? Terrific. I and really blue. appreciate both of you. For, and blue, yeah. Um, <laughs> Dogs on podcasts. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much. We really, really appreciate your uh, generosity with your time and talking with us and hearing parts of your stories that I'm sure have come up at various points in your podcast, but having them together as sort of here's a chunk of story uh, gives people the opportunity to get to know you two better also. And we appreciate that. We are very flattered and to be asked and happy to be here. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, interested in more polyamory uncensored content? You're in luck. We just started a blog, polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com. We're going to be showcasing stuff like episode breakdowns, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy related book reviews, and guest posts from authors like you. If you'd like to be a guest author, contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com, and you might be able to see your work up on our website. Again, that's polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com, and we're going to have some fun new poly-related content for you. Thanks. See you there. All right, we are back talking to Cunning Minx and Lusty Guy. And today I really wanted to talk about something that I think I've been hearing you say on the podcast. And I think you said you, you're, you've been podcasting for 15 years, right? Like, or, or around there or right over? 17. 17. Okay, so I feel like I've probably been listening for about 15 because I've been poly for 14 years and or so. So around there about is how long I've been listening to the podcast. And something that I have really gathered from um, Polly Weekly, and then also something I live by is the motto of owning your shit. And I love that motto, but I do think that it has had a little bit of controversy of late and is kind of like contentious in some poly groups, right? But just so we can just talk about it in general and what, what it means to all of us, like what does owning your shit mean to you? Yeah, I mean, basically owning your shit means looking for and recognizing your contribution to any particular conflict um, that you're having at that time. It has a couple of things, uh, ancillary assumptions that go with it. One is that everybody's doing it and that everybody assumes that there is a part of that pile of conflict that they've contributed to. It can be weaponized for sure. And I think, you know, in terms of the poly controversy from my uh, online reading of it and, and whatnot, and I don't profess to be an expert, <clears throat> a lot of that weaponization is around the notion that own your shit means shut up. It's all about you. It's not about me. And own your shit means it's half about all of us. We all got half in this pile. Uh, that's one of the, the inherent assumptions. We say all the time that all of our 
um, guidelines that we're going to give for managing your relationship assume a number of things. And one of the things that they assume is this is not an abusive relationship. An abusive relationship can take any one of these provisos and any one of these guidelines and weaponize it and turn it into an idea that furthers that abuse. It's the nature of abuse. Um, but uh, uh, for what we tend to mean by it, we mean in a non-abusive relationship, in a situation where everybody is um, working towards mutually beneficial situations, that in a moment of conflict, the odds are exceedingly good. Everybody's done something to contribute to that conflict. And in as much as people can look for and find and then take ownership of their contributions, that conflict's going to be easier to manage. And owning your shit is in reference to that process of looking for your contributions to the conflict. Yeah, it's a way of showing your emotional intelligence and your self-awareness. Um, it's really easy to, you know, blame something like a, a conflict or a disagreement all on someone else. And the truth is that even if it's, say, 90% the other person's quote unquote fault, uh, there, you know, it takes two people to have a disagreement. It shows, who has a lot to say. The idea of owning your shit is your opportunity to show humility and to show self-awareness that there may be something you have done to contribute to the conflict. It may be a small thing. It could be a big thing. I mean, maybe something that's a small thing to you is a big thing to your partner and acknowledging that can actually move you, propel you quite far forward in terms of resolving the agreement. But yes, it's looking at your words and your behavior and saying, hmm, what could I do differently next time? Uh, sometimes I find that's more helpful instead of saying, you know, my contribution to this, but to think of, okay, sure, maybe you didn't do anything, quote unquote, wrong this time, but what would you do differently next time, knowing where you are now? And sometimes that's helpful. One of the things that I think people bring to the notion of owning your shit is an idea of blame or fault. If you have mm -hmm. shit, there must be blame or fault. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I say all the time is that fault is a broken model. Now, again, I'm talking about this in the context of a non-abusive relationship. If somebody's getting drunk every other night and beating you up, fault very much applies. They're wrong. Get the fuck out. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Setting that aside, in an actual most of the time you know, relationship where everybody's trying to get along and work things through, fault's a broken model. All you're going to do is devolve into endless arguments and blame and uh, uh, attempts to assign who exactly is at fault at that moment. Just accept that everybody contributed to the pile. Work on identifying the parts of that. And by pile, I mean factors that made that, that, that conflict. Work on identifying the factors that are particularly bothersome to you and that you contributed to the pile. You communicate the former to the person you're arguing with in the hope that they'll have goodwill and want to address it. And if they don't, you have a lesson to learn. And you identify the latter in an attempt to find the areas of yourself that you will work on, thus modeling the response you want from them and making it more likely, not guaranteed, but more likely that you'll get it back. As a good friend of mine used to say, what part of modeling do you not understand, asshole? Yeah, it's true. Uh, and he does say fault is a broken model and blame is a broken model. Uh, it's very easy to devolve into shit owning, <laughs> being 
blame owning or blame pointing. And uh, it, and that's very natural, at least in this particular society that we grew up in. Um, but it's true that it's not really very helpful. And talking about, you know, here's the contribution I made to this misunderstanding uh, and what I would do differently and or what I would do differently next time is a lot more helpful because then you don't feel like you are accepting blame or pointing blame in any one direction. And it's just a lot easier for our egos to take. And you know, the, one of the things I really like about the shit owning process is that it does require a level of listening and a level of self-awareness and one of humility, um, all of which are going to stand you in good stead in any relationship, I would think. So do you think people who are, are now kind of claiming that it's problematic are totally misunderstanding? And what do you think they think it means, I guess? I actually have a sort of related comment. When I first got engaged to my ex-wife, we were given the advice to um, take on being at cause of the other person's life working for them. And not like it's true or it's your job, but like if you approach the relationship and life as from the point of view of I am privileged to be able to cause your life to work for you. It's a very different way of framing, you know, how does everybody get their needs met? And there, the advice was also sort of like, imagine that you're a hundred percent responsible, not each of you is 50, 50, uh, which is very hard to wrap your mind around. But in terms of as an owning your shit model, like, really looking at, okay, what am I doing that's causing your life not to really work for you? And what can I do differently that will cause the people in my life who I care about and want to be happy to have lives that work better for them? Um, I think it is really about owning your shit, communicating clearly, trying to figure out how to get everybody's needs and desires taken care of to the best extent that everybody can. Absolutely. Uh, the, the version of that that I say all the time, we say all the time, is that relationships exist to maximize the odds of everybody becoming better versions of themselves. And so you want to help create a system that everybody who's enmeshed in is, are receiving positive uh, effects from that system. And conversely, when you're in a system that's encouraging negative effects that's telling as well um so i'm i'm totally with you i think that's what relationships are about um that doesn't mean that we are responsible for our partner's outcomes right we're not responsible that our partner must be happy we're responsible for contributing to a system that maximizes the odds that our partner will be happy the actual reality is kind of beyond your control can't really, you know, can't do anything about it. Um, but we can try to help engineer a system that maximizes the odds for all of us around. Yeah, another way of thinking about owning your shit is uh, if you've ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of the things they talk about is uh, your sphere of influence. So the idea of sphere of influence is that th these are the things that you can directly control. And what you can directly control is your actions and to a large extent, your thoughts and your feelings. I can't control how someone else feels. I can't control how someone else acts. But what I can do is 
be humble and kind and curious and loving enough to ask them, as Lusty Guy said, what type of environment will help them to feel or act better. And if there is something that is within my sphere of influence to do that can contribute to that environment, well, then I'm probably going to do it. And I just, I feel the need to throw in again that this is not, we're not talking about relationships that are abusive. Or as Lusty Guy pointed out earlier, relationships where only one person is owning their shit and the other people consistently aren't. That's not a successful functioning relationship. And if that happens as a pattern, even if it's not abusive, it's not a healthy relationship if you're the only one willing to own your shit and the other people aren't. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because I, I do think that my own personal experience where I've felt like I'm using the own your shit motto almost like defensively have, have been in relationships that maybe weren't abusive, but had aspects of, of like manipulation or, or someone trying to control me or something like, you know, possessive or whatever, but like trying to reply in turn to that manipulation with, Hey, you need to own your shit. It, you know, if you're working in those contexts, it doesn't usually work out, right? Like, they're like, no, I want to control you. <laughs> I want to manipulate you. This doesn't work for me. I'm not going to own anything. Uh, but yeah. those aren't the kind of like healthy relationships you're talking about. Yeah. One of the things about own your shit is that it doesn't work in isolation. We have a number of aphorisms that we use. Things like, you know, we mentioned everyone's shovel is always full and the purpose of relationships is to make the people in them healthier and happier versions of themselves. Another one is um, assuming goodwill all around. If you don't, if you genuinely don't believe that your partner has your best interests at heart um, or even the relationship's best interest at heart, if you do feel they are being manipulative, if you do feel that you may be being gaslit or abused, uh, then owning your shit doesn't work. It's true that it is dependent upon several of these other factors. Um, people have to be in a place where they feel it is okay to say how they really feel and where they can accept responsibility and own their shit without being punished for it. If you're, if you don't have a safe space where you can own your shit without being blamed and punished, then no, it's not going to work at all. Uh, if someone's going to use that against as ammunition against you the next time you have an argument, then yeah, it doesn't work really well because there is not goodwill all around. Uh, the, you know, if you have a partner who is more concerned about gathering ammunition for future fights or convincing all of your friends that they are right and you are wrong, it's not a healthy model. It needs to be used in conjunction with um, other healthy traits and uh, in a relationship where people can actually trust each other. If you don't have a basis of trust in the relationship, then no amount of owning your shit or any of the other things we talk about is going to work. Yeah, and I want to circle back to the question that you asked, Lindsay, when you said, you know, the people who are saying that the ownership model is abusive or wrong or whatever, are they just, are they just wrong? And, you know, my answer to that is no. Uh, you know, as the saying goes, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. If there was somebody who really had the opinion that that model was wrong and there was some inherent problem with it, I would really want to hear why, you know, and what their thinking and reasoning was, knowing that for them, it's probably right. You know, in their lived experience, that was how it was used. And so I would want to know, okay, well, what are you thinking and why and how does that work for you? And, you know, you met that Buddha on the road and killed that Buddha. Great. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. And that's what matters most. Yeah, agreed. That's a good point. 
Yeah. I think that's a really great point because we do all come from different perspectives and different lived experiences. And, you know, part of really what we know as non-monogamous or polyamorous people is everything doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Yep, that's true. And, you know, there have been times when I was in such an emotional state that it was really hard for me to own my shit. I mean, I would do it eventually, but there were some emotional blockers uh, because of some other things that were going on. So, you know, in that time, owning the shit wasn't right for me. It eventually was. It generally works for me. It can be a useful tool, but it's only a tool. It's not some sacrosanct uh, Ark of the Covenant that must never be altered. It doesn't work for everyone. Some other method of being vulnerable and uh, humble and being open to hearing what your partner says and open to, you know, changing your behavior or uh, reviewing at the very least your own behavior, whatever works for you is fine. We're not, you know, I for one am not preaching this as any type of fix-all. It just can be certainly handy. I have found it useful over the years. Well, and I will definitely admit that like sometimes I think I've used it in maybe the more problematic way where, you know, and I think it actually took me reading Polysecure to be like, oh, I'm dismissive avoidant. And this is, she's describing me to a T. Oh, okay. Maybe I should look into this where trying to kind of dismiss and avoid problems in a relationship have made it so that I've said, well, you own your shit and I'll be over here and I don't need to handle or deal with anything, you know? Um, so I, it like reading that book has helped me kind of form the own your shit into a better place and put it in a better place. Right. Um, because I do think it's kind of easy to use it as a free for all to, to say, I don't have to, I don't really have to be responsible for my partner's feelings because they're the only ones that should be yet. I should care about them. <laughs> I should care what they feel. Yeah. I yeah, own, yeah. Own your shit doesn't mean don't care about anyone else. Uh, yeah. Own your shit just means there is a time and a place when you can look at your own feelings and emotions and in a safe and vulnerable space, share those with your partner. It's not a way to dismiss other people's concerns because their feelings are their own. This brushes up against a, a common idea that I think is a little kind of, if you will, um, emotionally and randian. The idea that because everybody's emotions are their own, right? They happen inside their own space and their own model. That means none of us must make contributions to that model and none of us can be responsible for our contributions. And that's bullshit. That is spoken with the, and I used Dan Rand for a particular reason, that is spoken with the ignorance of somebody who's never been punched in the face. Because I promise you, if you have been punched in the face full force with ill intent, you did not respond with hearts and flowers. Not unless you're an incredibly trained, practiced person. Uh, almost all of us, when we catch that shot to the chops, are going to have an adrenaline response, are going to come back angry and hurt and in a very flushed, hot state. We make contributions to other people's emotional reactions. And for all that in the final analysis, I'm responsible for my actions, no matter what my emotional state was, 
if we're in a relationship and the whole idea of a relationship is that we can elicit joy in each other, that means we can elicit great pain as well. And I can't use the idea that you own your emotions to absolve myself of responsibility for my contributions to that set of experiences. And I think that a lot of people do just that. They say, because your emotions are yours, they're not mine. I don't have any responsibility for my contributions. Well, guess what, bitch? If you don't call me back for a week, that contributes to me not feeling well. And I'll own it. And I'll put it in the term that says, you know, when you I phrasing, and I'll say these are my feelings. But at the same time, you got to own responsibility for not calling me for a week or smacking me in the face or lying to me or ignoring me or whatever. That's the point of a relationship. If there's somebody who really, I don't want to give enough keys to the kingdom so that they can hurt me or make me happy at all. Well, that's a stranger on the street. That's not somebody I'm in a relationship with. And do you really want me to think of you like I do a stranger on the street? Do you want me to give you that little of power in my emotional state? Or are we trying to be a partnership here? I think that's a great point too, because it really maybe points to own your shit is almost slightly misleading and maybe it really ought to be own my shit. Like each of us needs to take responsibility for ourselves. As, as lusty guy pointed out earlier, if I'm the only one owning my shit and nobody else is willing to own their shit, it doesn't work very well. Uh, It really needs to be everyone involved needs to be doing that work of looking inside yourself, own your shit, being vulnerable, being humble, looking at what you could do differently. If it's only you and the other person's like, yep, you own your shit. Good for you. Bye. See ya. <laughs> no, as, as, as he said, you know, you don't text me or don't respond to messages for a week. I'm going to have feelings about that. Now, there could be a good reason. I'm willing to be open to listening to what was going on with you. So I understand and we can figure out how we're both not hurt so much next time. But it's true. It, it doesn't mean that I am an island and completely unaffected by the people around me. Everybody needs to do the work of owning their shit. And we do need to acknowledge that uh, other people's actions, while outside of our sphere of influence, um, can affect the way we feel. And it's really important that everybody involved does do that work of owning their shit, not just one person. (laughs) And the other one's like, great, I'm going to go out for dinner. See you later. Having said that, I would not quibble in the slightest with your proposed rephrasing, because at heart, that is really what it means, owning my shit. You're right. I think this has been a great conversation. I really just want to thank you guys again for joining us and talking about all of this stuff with us. It's really been uh, fantastic and interesting and thought provoking. I think it's going to be a fantastic episode. Thank you. It was really fun for us to really nice to be on somebody else's podcast. It's been a while. So thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to run off our mouths. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us and um, best of luck. We look forward to listening to the podcast and many others. Do you guys have anything you'd like to promote? I don't know if you guys are doing classes. I I also was wondering if you're doing classes anytime soon. I know with the pandemic, you guys probably stopped a lot of stuff, but yeah, we stopped doing, we really love teaching at events and we haven't been doing that. And I got to say, I really miss it. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of folks have pivoted to online classes, but 
I spend all my day online and just couldn't like I could we could have easily set something up, but I just couldn't handle like being online again at another online meeting. Uh, it just didn't sound fun to me. We miss like one teaching. or two, but not many. Yeah. Yeah. We just, I really miss live teaching. I'm really hoping we can get back to that at some point, maybe 2022, 2023, some point. Um, Having from, said that, we're always happy to promote com. Um, yep. and the Twitter and all the other stuff that you know that I don't. And you can find, yeah, you can find Polly Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Polly Weekly and you will find it. Or the word polyamory will usually turn us up. And um, yeah, actually, I will say that we're running a little low on Happy Polly Moments. So if anybody is a Polly Weekly listener and you've had a Happy Polly Moment, if you could write or call in, that would be really wonderful because we talk a lot on the podcast about Polly problems and Polly challenges. And there is a lot of heartbreak that we have to address. And it's just kind of nice to have that little palate cleanser of some Happy Polly Moments to remind us all of why it is that we do this. And how can people reach you to um, leave those happy poly moments? Email polyweekly at gmail.com. You can also message me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash polyweekly, and you can send polyweekly a message. I have a really happy poly moment, so I will be uh, sharing one of those very soon. Awesome. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much. This was great. I love this. Have a terrific rest of your weekend and uh, look forward to listening to you again soon. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. Have a great day. Have a good night. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye. Lindsay, we've met in person, right? Yeah. You came Madison. To, um, yes. You actually came to our first poly get together. I remember um, that. In Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And yeah. you, yeah, that you weren't expecting anyone and there were like 30 people there showed up and it was like standing people. room only. It was really insane, which I use as an example all the time. Um, yeah. You know, it was you in your book. The only ones I promise you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I know. I read it and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> She's talking about us in a book. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, cool. <laughs>